This is W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. ago, the great American philosopher John Dewey gave us a new view of how art works and why art is so important to us. He took art off its high pedestal. He rejected its pretensions of holiness, of awe, of unreality, and he saw the origins of art in the processes of everyday life. He said, the intelligent mechanic engaged in his job finding satisfaction in his handiwork and caring for his materials and tools with genuine affection, is artistically engaged. This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis. Artist Experience is the title of Dewey's great book on philosophy of art, and we follow in the traditions of Dewey in his anti-hierarchical footsteps and see art everywhere in our lives, in the carpets, pots, and gardens created with such care by anonymous artists, in lovingly restored cars, and in those neighborhood free libraries. I don't know if you've seen them, these decorated cabinets on posts in the neighborhood where people share their books. But here's the surprising thing, and it's a huge payoff. This approach also opens for us the world of the greatest artists like Rembrandt, Cezanne, and Pollock. Cezanne, the master magician, can and really should be approached with relaxed and exploring interest, approached as a drawer of pictures, not as an awesome demigod, but as an artistic practitioner who provides us with enhanced experiences. To enjoy art, you must be open to it, be open to all art, Don't worry about embarrassing yourself by loving something the wrong amount or the wrong way. Art is for you. There's a difference between great art and mediocre art, but it's not in what kind of art it is, what style or what period. It's not even in the art object itself. More on this later. The difference between great art and mediocre art is simply that great art keeps on giving you more the more you are open to it. Our show is dedicated to opening these experiences. In a few weeks, we will indeed be talking about Cezanne and the recent show of his drawings at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Opening up is our process. You have nothing to lose but your chains. That's wonderful. Uh, Thank you, Sheila. Good morning, everyone. Today we continue our series on Art of the Garden. Our discussion today is going to take us to another kind of place and space other than an historical garden or the painters that immersed themselves in their own gardens and painted them. The Artist Experience Radio Program has been here from the beginning at WOWD Tacoma Radio, and we've introduced our listeners to hundreds of exhibitions, hundreds of, uh, probably thousands of artists at this point, but I felt within our garden series it was time to get philosophical. Oh boy, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Sheila and I are going to get philosophical about creation and creativity in place and space. Why is there this need to be creative and create something, a product, anything, with our minds, bodies, and possibly our souls? This is an age-old discussion, but we want to tie it in with our garden series, and here it is why. I've come to my co-host's home and environments for years, And Sheila and her husband Peter have truly have made a place and a space conducive to creativity. Their environment is a sensual invitation to be creative and it's inspiring. I mentioned this to Sheila in talking about our work, not only as visual artists, but as being on the radio and sharing information about creativity. Sheila, what about your space and place in creation and creativity? Well, thanks, Tom. When I was 21 years old, 
I had my first baby. I was living in a tiny basement apartment in New York, and I hadn't a clue about getting ready for the baby. So while I was in the hospital four days back then, my friends came over and cleaned and brought some paper decorations in Chinatown, and they made this place somehow delightful. It was so lovely, and it gave me something more, the importance of liking where you live. So thank you, Marilyn, and thank you, Lois. Peter and I live in a neighborhood of fairly small houses, and over time it's become a block of gardens. When we moved here 22 years ago, there were two gardeners on the block, and they would thin their gardens, their plants, and people would take them. And gradually, we all have abundant gardens with flowers and shrubs and trees. One neighbor took over the corner of the house across the street from her, and we all pitched in to make a flower, vegetable, and herb garden. So now, at the end of the summer, everything is exploding. Our own yard is sort of an ongoing project that gets better and better. And every morning, when I go to, out to pick up the newspaper, I look down into our yard and think, we live in a beautiful world. Amen. We're surely seeing the effects of climate change when most of the big oak trees have died this year. And we read the newspapers and feel helpless as to what to do. And I tell myself that I can only do my part by doing what I can in my little world. But my beautiful space here is surely a buffer against depression and despair. A couple of days ago, I went to visit my brother in Brooklyn, not the Brooklyn filled with strollers with babies and trendy clothes and coffee shops and nannies, but another Brooklyn, a neighborhood with Muslims and Hasidic Jews and Hispanics. The restaurants aren't the tablecloth kind, but quick stops to get any kind of ethnic food. The houses are big residents filling the lots. Every house has the declaration of who lives there. There's a lot, and I mean a lot, of shiny chrome ornamental fences with silver and brass and these granite polished stone finials on every post. And there are yards filled with plastic toys and bikes and sometimes a beautiful, tasteful, like in my kind of taste anyway, flowers with gray, gay pride flags. The houses with the toys are the Hasidic Jews, lots of kids, and the ones with the shiny stuff are Muslim. And each one has its own aesthetic, either because some salesman seizing on an opportunity to sell to a group who want to identify as a community, or by default, the toys in the front yard. My brother lives in a regular apartment. He said to me, Sheila, I have to move. Where should I move to? And I said, why don't you move in here? There are boxes all over the floor, and it looks like when the movers dropped all this stuff off, it's still wrapped in plastic discarded cardboard, lamps, and books from our parents, and it's so depressing. I encouraged him to act, because if you wake up in the morning and that's your place, why not go back right back to bed? I hope he finds the spark of creativity necessary. I asked him to take some pictures of his neighborhood for this show, and he did, and I'm happy to have them. Tom said something important about creativity. It involves a tangible product. When I was a kid, I loved my paint-by-numbers kits. Many, maybe as far as being completely satisfied, that was my high point in art. <laughs> <laughs> I loved John Nagy, the TV artist, and those little molds that you pour plaster of Paris into and paint, painted. No one judged me for liking it, but later as I got older, I left that behind and maybe that complete satisfaction, too. I judged myself and other people in a hierarchy of art. I judged the thousands of people who loved and followed Bob Ross and took his classes and bathed in his glow, making mountains and rivers and trees. Happy. <laughs> Happy trees. <laughs> the Zoom art teachers now who give you a photo to copy or have a model on the screen. What's wrong with that? In my judgmental self, I can say, they don't teach you to see. They teach you to make some recognizable image you can frame. And what's wrong with that? So when Tom suggested we do a show on the many kinds of creativity, I thought this was a great idea, a chance to explore. And for me, to explore a conflicted subject, because there are so many ways of being creative. Like those sip-and-paint bar nights that were so popular before COVID that my granddaughter went to with her friends. She had a ball. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, you know, so many artists and 
Many people uh, that we even know personally have sought refuge to be creative. I mean, they've also ran away to places to be creative. I mean, I was thinking of um, Josephine Baker in Paris, Ernest Hemingway, and, you know, think of the artists that you love, and they, they've sought a refuge to be creative. And Sheila is very fortunate to have such an environment. It was a conscious effort that Sheila and Peter made to make it so. It's, it's very important to, to, uh, that highly creative people have this. There are tomes of books about this kind of world we need to make to develop our creativity in place and space. I'd like to give just two famous examples. Fra Angelico, he was born Guido de Pietro, was a monk born in 1395, and he died in 1455 at the beginning of the Italian Renaissance. As a devout Christian, he became a brother in an order, and he was moving from place to place around Florence, helping in various communities as a monk and an illuminator, so he was an artist. Well, he had an opportunity to move into a new monastery outside Florence, and then he moved into a, a new monastery in Florence, the Friary of San Marco. Well, Cosimo de' Medici heard about him. He was the most powerful man in Florence. Cosimo uh, saw his talent and said, we basically need to give this guy a monk cell so, so, so that he can call it his spiritual home and creative home. And we need to, and we need to let him do his thing, and that's paint. And that's what he did. And he was given a very modest space and place, and this, and he became one of the masters of the early Renaissance, and his work remains today. He did his work from his cell, and, and um, he found his creative place and space. We're going to fast forward to the middle of the 20th century, and we're going to turn to Jackson Pollock. And we turn to the most one of the most irreverent artists, as a contrast to the most reverend in Fra Angelico. In November of 1945, Jackson Pollock and his wife Lee Krasner moved to what is known as the Pollock Krasner House and Studio, which is in Springs in, the, in East Hampton, Long Island. A wooden frame house on about 1.56 acres with a barn off of the Akabonic Creek. Well, Pollock and Krasner had visited his friends nearby and they found this house in 1945. It was $5,000. And it's not like they had the money, but Peggy Guggenheim, a, a big patron of Jackson Pollock, loaned them $2,000 to, to, to pay down the house in exchange for some artwork. Well, at first, Pollock had a studio upstairs, but then he decided to move to, to the barn to improve the house, but also to give him a larger studio space. And Krasner began to use the bedroom as her studio, and she was a wonderful artist in, in her yes, own right. Yes, she was. Pollock's brother had given him a large collection of square Masonite baseball cards to cover the floor, and, and he did that in the house and the studio. But many stresses were developing in Pollock's life and strain, and his wife forced them to leave the tensions of the art world and the gallery scene and so many other artists' influences there in New York City. Well, it is here that Jackson Pollock, in the last nine years of his short life, created what we call drip paintings. But they are more appropriately called action painting, which revolutionized modern art for the abstract expression and brought American modern art to the epicenter, which was New York City, and taking it away from the Europeans. Jackson Pollock's um, need to get out of New York was thus his ascent and to be to, when he found this creative place and space. There are thousands of artists, as I mentioned before, that are of similar circumstances and have created their own spaces and places, which I like to kind of call a sacred space, which really has nothing to do with re religion or spirit uh, most of the time. And can't you relate to this, Sheila? Well, yeah, I really can, because getting ready for this show, I took some pictures of my phone, with my phone, of what I see when I get up and start my day. Well, a picture's worth a thousand words, so check it out on our Artist Experience Facebook page. This is a particularly beautiful time. We're at the, the beginning of fall, 
but it really is beautiful here for three seasons. And I always have flowers blooming up in the boxes in the winter on our patio. And there are red berries on the sparkle berries and hollies and camellias and the feeling of things percolating underground. We've never had a gardener and somehow this place has evolved. Peter will look at some place and or some space in the yard and say, I have an idea for that. That's terrific. It's great. I'm in that space with my painting, but he's the garden inspiration, moving something here and something there. But it's not sacred. I'm not much of a traveler. I have a little of that on my front patio where we have coffee every morning. I mean, who needs to go to France? But it's not at all precious. I love when my friends come by and we talk it up and gossip And mostly I'm just pleased that they're glad to be here. Anyone who knows a little about landscaping would surely improve on every part of our place, but it's fine. My grandson and his wife are trained as architects, and when they bought their house in Oregon, they said, we don't let anything into our house that's not exquisite. Hmm. We say that a lot. <laughs> it's not exquisite. I think about that exquisite can opener and the paper towel holder and the exquisite <laughs> dustpan. <laughs> Their garden is a sight to behold. And that includes the chickens and their coop and their water garden, and their greenhouse where they can sit and have a cold drink at the end of the day. They're, they've built every structure. We're not like that. But I used to paint when I was young in my kitchen and then in my garage, and now I have a very nice studio. It's nice on the outside. Inside, it's a mess, but it's my mess. And it's a beautiful mess. Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today we're continuing in our series on the art of the garden right here at WOWD Tacoma Radio. We continue today as, as part of this program is from our summer and fall series, but we're discussing the philosophical and practical concepts of creation, creativity, and that how there is a need for a place and a space. Concepts of creation go back a long way. It's biblical, literally and figuratively, and many people have philosophized and discussed the beginnings of creation that we will talk about later. I would like to talk about the Word. I'm very big on language, and I also teach a class on creativity to let us begin this conversation about what exactly is creativity and creation. Firstly, we have the verb to create and the noun creativity and the adjective creative, all coming from the same root. These words are not only rooted in language, but they're also rooted in science as well. The biology of creativity and the ability to create something is an important phenomenon in the human condition, but the reasons we are creative is a source of many conflicts, disagreements, and unresolved issues in the scientific community. We know that humans are not the only organisms that do creativity. We have primates, our close relatives, bees, dolphins, whales, and other animals also are creative. The pathways to create and to exhibit creativity is also varied, and the scientists still say that's a mystery as well. The complexity of this phenomena is is huge. So let's talk about the, the language of the word. In the verb form, to create comes from the Latin creatus, which is the past particle of the verb creare, which means to create. And it's an Italian word used today. This word means to bring into being. It means in the sense of to grow, to bring forth, to produce, to procreate, and to cause. Well, this is an important word which implies a process and a product. Aha! Mm -hmm. The noun creativity and the adjective creative are, of course, related to the verb to create. The noun is, in Latin, Ceres, which means to be born to grow, from the Latin verb crescere, which also the Italian word, which also is the Italian word, which means to grow or to rise from. 
Do you see where we're going with this? The adjective. Modern definition of the word creative is having the quality and function of creating or growing something. So the noun creativity is the faculty or ability to be the character of being creative. So these words conjure up in an instance to me. And I know our listeners could relate to it. Hundreds of people have asked me uh, over my short life, can anyone really draw, learn to draw? And the person usually follows it up with something like, you know, I can't even draw a stick figure or something like that. Well, my answer immediately, well, of course you can learn to how to draw and you can learn anything creative. You can learn how to sing, dance, cook, act, and, you know, I believe that for so many years. Anybody, they put their mind to it, mm-hmm. and they, they have a purpose and a process, they can learn those things. Sheila, what's your thoughts on this? Well, thanks, Tom. I notice between you and me that somewhere underlying a lot of what you say is that exact thought, that anyone can learn to be creative or can let their creative juices flow, which... I always notice about you. So that's great for you as a teacher. So I, I recently saw a documentary of Bob Ross. Bob Ross was a tender soul. He, as a kid, he would rescue animals and nurse them back to health. He never finished high school, and he joined the military. And it was there in Alaska that he took an art class. He was introduced to the wet-on-wet watercolor technique that didn't involve sketching, and he learned how to paint quickly. He had a soft, reassuring voice and permed hair and became a TV host. He gave classes on how to paint trees, like happy trees, (laughs) snowy mountains. And during each half-hour segment... Ross would instruct the viewers in the quick, wet-on-wet painting technique, and he'd paint a scene without sketching at first, but creating an image directly from his imagination in real time. He explained his limited paint palette, deconstructing the process into simple steps. Ross's soft voice and the slow pace of his speech were a little like Mr. Rogers, except that he was sexier, and it was the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) So so Ross used his television show to promote a line of art supplies and class recordings, building what would become a $15 million business, Bob Ross Incorporated, which would ultimately expand to include classes taught by other artists that were trained in his methods. The thing that fascinated me was the amount of grown-ups, mostly women, who loved the classes, loved Bob Ross, completely uncynical, and they were right, because Ross, although he did make a lot of money, he really wasn't about that. He was really about turning on people to the joy of painting, and he did. So why then am I not thrilled, along with his followers? Why do I have to criticize art teachers that teach you to copy a photograph online? I can tell you on an artistic terms because those approaches keep you from seeing. They keep you from developing your unique vision. This is true, but not many people want to do that. Even when I was teaching adults, they were, for the most part, educated, somewhat older adults, some retired, who would bring in pictures on their laptops to copy Since it was a class for adults, I really couldn't get in their way. I had a student who transferred a picture in Kinko's to a prepared canvas, and she wanted to paint the colors in. Well, they didn't want to develop their ability to see or to develop their unique vision. They wanted the pleasure of doing a decent copy and framing it on the wall. So what's wrong? For me personally, I've learned and looked and studied and enjoyed so many wonderful pictures and tried to come up with the most effective ways of teaching students to see, to experience the infinite ways of seeing and the satisfaction of your unique creation and the steps to get there that will last your lifetime. I felt in a bind 
Once when I was teaching a summer class, a woman brought in a Christmas card of a horse and wagon in front of the farmhouse. She wanted to copy it, and she asked me if I thought the wagon was dropping off things at the farm or picking things up and going home. (laughs) I was so frustrated. I wanted at least to show her how artists painted snow and the pale sky, and I said, I don't know, it's a GD Christmas card. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) That was awful. Doing this show, these 100-plus episodes that we've done, has helped me to understand this conflict about more, a bit more. Tom, you've always taken a clear position that everyone has the potential for creativity. And when you've said that, I found myself thinking about the examples I've just talked about, and I wasn't so sure. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but it helps to make distinctions. What bothers me is not amateur art or the spirit of amateur art because I love all sorts of amateur art, the art that people spontaneously create in their lives, what John Dewey talks about. And I think, yes, you may be right that everybody has potential, even a need for creativity. What bothers me is someone stopping short, being satisfied with their first attempts, being afraid to go further, putting the brakes on, and stubbornly refuses to refusing to listen to the art teacher. <laughs> it's their business, but I'm a teacher. Oh, <laughs> One caveat I want to say, and I just wanted to say this in here. It's a little bit interrupts the flow of of what we're talking about, but it's very important who you look at art with. If your companion is receptive, you can both enter together into that state of the imagination. And it's a wonderful thing to be in that company, to reinforce that state. Some, something like group meditation. But if you're with someone who is distracted, talking about where to have lunch, it will ruin the experience. It will prevent you also to have that experience. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Sheila. You know, it's 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 it, to do art also is supported by looking at art and look and looking at art could be walking in the forest and and looking at nature mm-hmm. and creation. And uh, we certainly can talk about the need to create a place and, and space in one's life, but I wanted to interject the idea that how major religions and spiritualities have dealt with creation as a concept. Well, where did all this beauty come from, you know, over all these millennia? millennia, And all these anonymous humanity that's been creative? Well, it's a really big story, and, 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 and so many people have come before us and have been creative in the, in the first place, and, and they allow us to create in this big humanity. And, and, you know, there's a lot of explaining to do about forms of creation. How did all this come to be that inspired us, uh, and that inspire us constantly, right? I mean, it's, there, there's uh, so much drama in the forms of creation around us. Everyone has been explaining it to us, either through evolution, through creationism, ideas, they're mostly religious ones, but this art as experience that we're talking about is is over millennia. And so, you know, this is a whole other topic, but I wanted to share that there are many ideas from various parts of the globe on how to explain the big C, which I call creation. You know, how do we all get this beauty in the first place? And then uh, us mere mortals are in the little c category because we've been sharing that inspiration about the big c. Well, when you're talking about major religions like Judaism and its seed of Christianity, you've got the Genesis story. You've got all that flow and all those people coming from that. And then you have Hindu and Islamic traditions. They deal with it as well, but maybe not as as much as Judaism especially and Christianity. But then you have indigenous peoples throughout the world. I'm thinking of Aboriginal culture 
and other cultures, Native American, for instance, uh, and they're, they're, they, have, they have their story. And there are so many mythologies, cosmologies, and so much literature and spoken theories about this big creation that leads us to our little creations. And that's the stuff we do in everyday life. So this is a, a, a rich legacy. And, and an important aspect is that we are the inheritors of this creation. And that's a lot of responsibility for us. And that's why I think we need to be creative. Do you need a belief system to understand your role in creation? I don't know. I mean, maybe you don't. You know. Well, I believe in life because also we are among the luckiest humans on earth. And I believe in being awake for your one life and in loving your family and friends and finding your unique contribution, whatever that may be. For people who want to find out what they have to say to reveal in this area in the fine arts, drawing, painting, sculpture, as an extension of seeing and imagining, traditionally that's what you learn from drawing. Now everyone has a camera on their phones. We were in the courtyard at the Museum of Modern Art watching a girl alone, taking selfies, rearranging her hair, her glasses taking a break, another pose, more selfies. That's not really what I mean. I mean, if you take pictures that interest you and really look and try more possibilities until you get closer to what you want and using the editing tools on your phone, cropping, color, well, now you're really getting somewhere. And there are some basic design principles Line, shape, negative space, two-dimensional flatness, and three-dimensional space. Color, value, balance, and alignment. Contrast, repetition, proportion, rhythm, and movement. This takes training the eye and the brain because they're abstract concepts. They're not the objects that you're drawing. And no matter if you're creating something abstract or representational, or in between. These abstract ideas will engage your eye, maybe unconsciously, but they will engage you. Look at the war posters from World War II, and look at the posters of Toulouse Trek and the Dada movement, and advertising. Photographers and representational painters, painters study abstract design principles. There are different ways to learn and absorb this, but gradually, if you're alert and trying to go further, you'll find your way. I agree with that. Thank you. And if you just joined us, you are listening to the Artist Experience radio program here here at WOWD Tacoma Park, Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today, we're continuing our series on the art of the garden right here and only right here on WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. We continue today with a program as part of our summer and fall series discussing on the philosophical and practical concepts of creation, creativity, and how there is a need for a place and a space.
Welcome back, and welcome to WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM. This is the Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with our co-host, Tom Sinakis, and we're talking about creativity as a potential mode of being in everybody. Well, so for so many years, I have been convinced that creativity is a human imperative, and that's how I've been saying it a human imperative. Not everyone agrees, but I feel it truly is. This idea came to me upon watching a lot of autistic people in my life when I was young. Carpenters, cooks, knitters, crocheters. I mean, athletes in some way, in a place and a space. And they were always in modern, or excuse me, modest environments. These people had to do what they wanted to do and nothing stopped them. They had a personal drive to make something and they enjoyed the ride. In college, I took two psychology courses. I was a B student in those classes and that's like <laughs> nothing more than a B. I was just lucky to get the B. If there was one thing I returned in those courses was Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Maybe I was very needy as a young man in college, but I ate up this topic. Maslow's hierarchy of needs fits well in this discussion of creativity and place in space. In many ways, the hierarchy of needs is a motivational theory in psychology in its pyramidal model, which captures the basic needs, psychological needs, and self-actualization needs in a five-tier system growing exponentially from the basic physiological needs until self-actualization, the highest tier on the pyramid. And here's where creativity percolates. But a little about Abraham Harold Maslow. He was born in Brooklyn in 1908, and he died somewhat tragically young, jogging, in 1970. Maslow was an American psychologist who was best known for creating this Maslow's hierarchy of needs and theory of psychological health predicated on fulfilling innate human needs and priority and culminating in self-actualization. Maslow was a psychology professor at Brandeis University, Brooklyn College, my alma mater, new, uh, the New School of Social Research, and Columbia University. He stressed the importance of focusing on the positive qualities in people, as opposed to treating them as a bag of symptoms. And the word positive is very, very important mm -hmm. here. And I mm -hmm. think that's what creativity mm -hmm. does for us. It keeps us in the positive. You must go on uh, on each tier as you go towards the top. So you, you cannot pass a tier. You might be able to experience them simultaneously, but it's the top tier of self-actualization and achieving one's full potential, which includes creative activities that we're talking about today. Sheila, I have often said that how blessed I feel, uh, how blessed I feel you and Peter are, or you some people might say fortunate, in both your creative lives. I never get a sense that you are satisfied in that you've reached your full potential. And you have many, many, many years of creativity left. I mean, how many times have we said that? That we both have like hundreds of years of idea, ideas in our head to create, whether it's painting or drawing, whatever. And, and, and I see that in you. You do? Yep. All right. You better Good. believe All it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I just wanted to tell our listeners that uh, there's a, uh, chart the Maslow self-actualization chart and go on our Facebook page please to look at it because it explains everything it's just a visual way of understanding what we're talking about but my point is I've chosen to be a painter because that's what I feel my contribution is and I'm always going forward and being humbled by what I don't know but looking and learning, I have plenty of images stored and ideas for a lifetime. They just come out while I'm painting. These opportunities to reprise things I've loved. Two painters I'll talk about. 
Okay, Matisse. He had a catalog in his surroundings and in his mind of the objects he surrounded himself with. Plants and paintings and models and fabrics and sunlight and shadows and floors and ceilings and the many, many patterns that he incorporated into his compositions, which were his home, his surroundings. And he invented harem situations with women with veils and hookahs from his trips to Morocco. Now, Roy Lichtenstein, who was uh, really came to his own in the 60s and 70s, took his subjects from American comic books. And then he took his subjects from Matisse. And he had a whole like Sears and Roebuck catalog of Matisse's objects that he used in his comic book style. And he made compositions. And then after Matisse, he moved on through art history, through art movements, to Asian art using his bende dots, which were his com- came from his comic books, in innovative styles to become the atmosphere of Chinese scrolls and landscapes, and always with a detached and often humorous take, but always with attention to composition. Ah, very nice. I, I kind of like the way you interjected uh, emotional words like love, uh, into this process because I think that's very, very important and, and Matisse uh, and certainly Roy Lichtenstein are great examples. Mm-hmm. Well, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is so important because it becomes a, a general model uh, and, and there's so many versions of that have since come out since the original and it has so many applications to psychology, sociology, education, and creativity. The interesting thing that fascinates me about these five tiers, which is the original model, and they have to work in a process. The lowest need is physiological, and then there's the safety need, and, and love, and a belonging need, and then there's an esteem need. But they all, you have to work through this process and these are called deficiency needs once then these needs are met the motivation decreases now this is where it gets really important the top tier which is the actualization one cannot be met until the others are met in that sequence and that's a process so the last and highest tier which again is the self-actualization one is really about a call to being and growth, the things that you need. You need to be a being and you need to grow. At this level, the motivation increases and when all the other things are met. So so basically, when you're spurred on, when you're growing, it's like, you know, you, you're getting high on this growth mm-hmm. and you like it and you want it and you want to be creative and you want to be engaged in process. And it's, you know, any kind of art form, not just drawing and painting and sculpture. So all these tiers engage that concept of process, which equals growth. And of course, this is a very fluid thing. And it is it's not very strict. It has some you know, looseness to it, like every process does. And yes, there's failure and disappointment in me in meeting these needs, but it's still part of the process. In other words, failure and disappointment are very much part of this uh-huh. growth. And I find this model incredible in the process of making art and being creative. And this brings me to the concept of process versus product. And we have had so many discussions on this program about that. Many artists are very process-oriented, but some are also strictly product-oriented. And I, when I was teaching at the Corkin like you, Sheila, yeah. I mean, some students would just come in there on the weekend to just have a painting to you know, give to a grandchild you know, uh, for their birthday. Uh-huh. You know, it, it was just get, get it over with and give it away. But mm-hmm. others were not that interested in product right and then there's there's another thing too that in the 
later part of the 20th century, there have been artists like Jasper Johns and Richard Serra who made process their subject. Yeah, that, uh, Jasper Johns is a great example yeah, of that. Yeah, and Richard Serra flinging lead on the wall of his studio. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. I mean, Jackson, Jasper Johns, excuse me, Jasper Johns wasn't even really concerned about, you know, the conservation qualities of it. He just did it. Yeah. You know, whether it lasted his lifetime or not, he really didn't care. He just had to do it as process. Mm-hmm. Well, sadly, we live in a very product-oriented world. And this has been a situation for years. Many of us want to grow, but our society dictates that we do it swiftly and completely. But also, we see failure as a tremendously weak situation or circumstance, that failure word. Many times, we are worse, uh, immersed in, in, in the mania of doing something creative with, with, with the simple result of, of a product, uh, to produce that product, and we forget about the ride or the journey. And... Um, the process can be strict, it could have strict parameters, but we also could be unfairly critical. And mm-hmm. I think we also live in a society that's very self-critical. Uh, and there are a lot of prerequisites these days where creativity can become stifled. And in some ways, the creativity of place and space really exists in our minds and in the environments where we want the need to be creative. So I tell my students, can you just enjoy the ride? Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, just enjoy it. You know, I mean, and you could do it anywhere. You know, some, you know, oh, I need a studio. I need, you could do it like you said, in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. In uh, my, I had a great studio in a garage. But the ride takes time. And I think we live in a society that crushes time. So the process in some ways becomes fulfilling as convenience. So, you know, we got a lot of things. And so there, there often leaves little room for imagination, innovation, expression, and joy in the sense of creativity. And Sheila used the love mm-hmm. word, which I think is a great word, and a lot of times we don't want to use it. But just love making something. And, um, you know, you know, you, you, everybody's, you know, kind of gleaning into this kind of, you got to be the perfect. You know, you got to make the perfect art. You got to be the perfect parent. You, you know, you got, you got to, you know, walk across the country without getting blisters. You got to sing the opera without missing a note. And that's just not the way it is. Uh, it all is about a process, whether it's failure or not, it's all positive, especially in the 21st century. So, you know, it, you know what it reminded me of? You know that ad for the Army recruitment, be all you can be? Uh-huh. There's something uh-huh. really good about that. Uh-huh. Just uh-huh. do it. Yes. And, and it comes right out of Maslow's needs of hierarchy. Just be what you can be uh-huh. and do it. Yes. And uh, I really kind of, I've been kind of get, getting on this, but, uh, you know, there's so much more. And in the 1970s, before Maslow died, I'll leave you with this. He actually developed another tier. And that, other, well, two other tiers. The one was called cognitive needs, mm. which is kind of a, a, a baseline, but then, the one that he invented at the end was the highest tier, and that was called transcendence. And this is the place where creativity goes beyond self-actualization. It's almost, you know, something that could be mystical uh, and possibly erotic, possibly aesthetic. It goes beyond just the creation and the product. It takes you to another level. And I think that's for a lot of us, is a very scary place. Uh-huh. Thank you. Tom. But I'd like this to get there. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to uh, go back to John Dewey. Because all this is, to me, very fascinating. So John Dewey 
has a lot to add to our conversation today. In everything he wrote back in the early decades of the 20th century, he was working to break down the inherited hierarchies in our culture and increase democracy. In Artist Experience, his book, he points to our aesthetic experiences in everyday life, the fire engine rushing by, the workers high up on girders, the ball player, those fascinating events that grab your attention. And he claims that there is a continuity between these kind of events and the experiences of art. Starting your theory of art here helps you avoid the terrible and almost universal error of thinking of art as something esoteric, which implies that you must first get the secret key before you can understand it. There are many factors that push us to place art in a realm of its own, isolating it, disconnecting it from other modes of being, making us think of art as something august and sacred, or as a tool to separate people into Philistines and their superiors. Let's ignore them for now and consider that that experiences of art are continuous with everyday aesthetic experiences. Art is the activity that pays attention to aesthetic experiences. It chooses them, creates them, concentrates, and shapes them. Art is the activity that has no other goal than the creation of an aesthetic experience in the viewer or in the listener. It follows that to understand art, you must look at the experience, not the object. The greatness of the greatest art is in the experience of the viewer, not in the object. In fact, it's in the experience. That's where the art is located, not on the wall or on this page. A poem is a script that the reader performs almost often to herself, then outwardly silent, but it's performed and heard in all its sounds in a sort of theater of the imagination. And that's where art is. That's where it is, not on the page, not in your head, but out there in the theater of your imagination. When you view a painting, you let it appear to you in the theater of your imagination. If it keeps appearing and appearing and appearing, it is real art. It's there on the wall at first, but develops depth. If it's a more traditional easel painting, you look through the frame as through a window onto a scene. If it's contemporary, it might come forward off the wall into your space. Viewing art is a practice, which means you get better at it the more you do it. You see, there's no way to have a theory of art which distinguishes the worthwhile from the useless. It's a mistake to stand outside the art, take note of some apparently distinguishing features, classifying it, and say, that's not art, or that's derivative, or that's so 80s. (laughs) Not until you let it speak to you and reveal itself to you do you have any idea. Viewing art is a practice, which means you do get better at it the more you do it. Thank you, yes. Uh, well, we're really getting philosophical today, aren't we? We are. <laughs> I think Bear we all, with us. <laughs> I think we often underestimate the power that we hold to create, to grow, as individuals, as communities, as nations, and as humanity. The power of the process towards a goal is one of the true ways to maximize our potential as human beings. The common excuse is, I don't have a place, an environment, a space to be creative. Additionally, people always say, I don't have the time. Well, make the time as your potential can be actualized in so many ways and the positive results of creativity become exponential in a virtuous life. It is sad but true. How many people do we really know that have neglected their creative side, Mm -hmm. or ignore their creative spirit and deny they need to express themselves to grow and produce and create some product with their hands or even their minds. 
A fulfillment comes in being creative. Your choice of a creative process does not matter. It doesn't matter which road you want to do as long as you're creative. And it's the efforts of a product emerging from your process that spawns further growth, further imagination, further dreaming that Sheila so wonderfully said. And you know what? The sky's the limit. I know it sounds trite, but the sky's the limit. You just got to make it and give it the effort. Find your place and find your space and go for it. And thanks for listening. <laughs> Sheila, what about this next show? You mentioned something. Yeah. Well, I'd love to do a show on the Cezanne drawings that I just saw in uh, a recent show at the Museum of Modern Art. It's there. This show has 250 drawings. That's incredible. Oh, my God. And they're often just sketches in his book and they this is so key because it's just the fact that he kept drawing he wasn't he wasn't trying to make greatness he was just recording whatever he saw around him people a clock a plant trees and there it's it really makes it gives you me that idea of creativity, making something out of what he saw. Oh, he's a wonderful example yeah. of process. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, obsessed by process, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you. It looks, looks like we'll be going to the Museum of Modern Art in New York for our next show. Experience art and the visual in everything you do, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Stop.